We've been looking at the book of James uh, for a couple of months now under the title of Steadfast. It's amazing how often the word steadfast appears in the book of James. It's like a heartbeat. And James's point is actually very simple, is that if you're going to be a church which isn't a cozy huddle, but actually, well, is like Jesus in that it lives to serve others, i.e. being on mission, well, that means that life's going to be tough. And therefore, we have to get into our loins, into our DNA, into our hearts, a call to be steadfast. It's not cool. It's not sort of funky idea. But it's massive. So many people are fair weather Christians, yeah? We can, we can be those who, when life's good, when life's fine, we kind of, you know, hands in the air, do the thing. But actually, what Jesus needs, he needs a people who will say, Lord, no matter what comes my way, even when I'm feeling so weak, I will put one foot in front of the other and keep going. That's in many ways what the book of James is like. It's saying, be steadfast with your lips. Keep going in terms of being careful with what you say. Be steadfast in your action. Don't just say, oh, we should do stuff with the poor. Bring stuff for the food bank. Get involved. He's saying be steadfast in humility. Don't let pride creep in. Be steadfast when the church grows and everyone gets more different and comparison creeps in. Be steadfast in not comparing yourself. He goes on and on. And, you know, if you're astute, you may have spotted a glaring omission in the book of James so far. Have you noticed what he has not explicitly said throughout the, all the verses and all the chapters that have come so far? He saves it right until the end. It's the issue of prayer. Breathtaking as it sounds, he has not actually used the P word once. He's implied it, But it's like James is wanting right at the end to punch us in the face with the thing that I wonder whether it was the most precious thing. If you knew James, if you knew James, what would be the thing that people around James would have said about James? I reckon a lot of people would have said James equals prayer. You know, historians say actually that he had a nickname. Do you know what it was? It wasn't Jimmy, it might have been, but the nickname was actually Old Camel Knees. Now, how cool is that? Old camel knees, because his knees, he was always on his knees. He was always on his knees praying. And they got all knobbly and, you know, like camely. And this man speaks to you today. And he saves this most precious, precious doctrine until the end. He, he doesn't want there to be any danger. Because if, if you put it at the beginning or in the middle, it might get forgotten. But it's like he wants it ringing in our ears as we go forth from this series. He's like, you could do everything I've said. And yet, listen, if you miss this, might I humbly say, much of what you've heard would have been in vain. It's that important. You can read the book of James. And if you miss these five verses, what happens is you can just get driven. You can go, he says, do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. Okay, James, I'll do stuff. Oh. And what he does is in his merciful kindness, right at the end, he goes, dives into the vertical joy of a life of prayer. So that whatever we do, wherever we are, whoever we are, whatever situation in life we are in, prayer, 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 prayer. He finishes with this absolutely electric exhortation from his heart about the vital importance of prayer. 
The real heart of it is this famous line here. He says, the prayer, verse 16, of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's the heart of this section. If you understand that, everything before it, everything after it comes into play. So let's read it then with that as the main heart of what he is wanting to be ringing in our ears. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look across a room like this. There's a lot of suffering. So what's his remedy? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Oh, yes. Spring is in the air. Summer is just a whiff away. Some of you are very cheerful. What do we do then? Oh, let him or her sing praise. Is anyone among you actually sick? Okay, yeah. Well, let them pray over them. Get the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with the name anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here it is. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, I ask with all my heart that you will take my human words and that you will profoundly rocket fuel them, Lord. Do what only you can do. Just break us out of autopilot, particularly over the issue of prayer, where we go, oh, prayer, Christianity, boring. I pray for this church. I pray for her. I pray for your bride as we are made beautiful, made ready for the day when we meet you. Now, come, and I pray, break, break wrong thinking about this and replace it with stunning truth that liberates. In Jesus' name, amen. What he does is here, it is brilliant. It's just masterful communication. Do you see what he does? He gives you four everyday scenarios. We've just read them. Four of them. Not just one, not two, not three. Four that every single person here can relate to at least one of them. So that by the end of those four scenarios, you are like, oh, I'm, 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 I, I see myself in this one, James. And then what he does is in the fifth one, the first four are somewhat more everyday. The fifth one, the whole thing about Elijah and the rain and that kind of thing, He saves until his last breath, as it were, this extraordinary example of prayer. And the principle is this. If you focus on the everyday ones, if you put those into place, if you give yourself to the things we're going to look at, these first four scenarios, you will be positioned correctly in your life for your Elijah moment. You must be those who understand. Listen, this room is full of people. Just like Elijah, you are totally normal, just as he was totally normal. And yet in these days, he wants to do greater things than he's ever done before through you. And he says, give yourself to what seems the everyday scenarios so that when the Elijah extraordinary scenario creeps up on you in God's sovereignty, you are ready. Okay? So we give ourselves. Scenario number one, I've summarized this. Here we see, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Scenario number one, when life's rubbish. All right? When life is absolute pants, when it's just a nightmare, and it isn't all brilliant, and for whatever reason, it's just you're just feeling the pressure, 
What does he say? Look, look at the words. They're very deliberate. Let him pray. Three words. Let her pray. You see, later on in this section, he, he kind of adds words. He says, pray fervently. And the prayer of faith. And he gives an expectation. Ooh, these big scary prayers. Here he just starts off. Hey, listen. If life's really kind of hard, just pray. Do you see that? Do you feel that? that the, it's just he lowers the bar kindly, lovingly. When your heart's kind of bruised, because life's really hard, actually, and you just feel, to be honest with you, I just feel, I don't know what, what's going on, but I just feel everything around me is really hard. He, he, he comes, he just says, just pray. You don't have to pray fervently. You don't have to pray dramatically. But please pray. I call them whisper prayers. Do you know what I mean by that? Those moments in your life where you can just about manage a whisper prayer. Every part of you, to be honest with you, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just really fleshly and not at all godly, which is very possible. When I'm feeling really crushed and cheesed off with God and just like, man, everything is just annoying and I just feel under pressure, I can normally only then just about manage what I call a whisper prayer where where I find my place, which for me is in my shed in my garden, and I sit in my chair and I I just whisper. And the instant that one word is whispered, the Bible says everything changes. It says that the moment you take that pain and that difficulty that we crazily just carry, and loads of you right now, you've come in here and you think, oh my word, I've just been living with this worry, living with this stress and this challenge, like it's just how it has to be. And I've, I've done what, to- I've forgotten to just whisper to God, Lord, I'm carrying this, man. Father. And the Bible says the moment that we say that one, just that one whisper prayer, everything changes. It's like, I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, everything that causes us to pray, could even be a really bad thing, anything at all, the moment it causes us to pray becomes a blessing. So it can either stay a curse, it can either stay a nightmare, there it is, but the moment we take it and we go, oh, instantly it becomes a blessing because you are then connecting with God himself. It's like converting currency, yeah? In this life, you're going to get given a load of rubbish currency. Oh, there it is. And and he says, convert it, convert it, convert it. What? Pray. The prayer of a righteous person, the whisper prayer, the weak, fragile, fumbling Pain-filled prayer, but a prayer nonetheless of his children. Oh, it is powerful. It's powerful. You see, this is the promise of Scripture that trials and difficulties will change you. You can't not be changed. You will either subtly move away from God or they can move you further towards God. But the one thing that we see is when pain and suffering comes, you never stand still. So if you are right now going through some level of suffering, let me ask you the question. Is it drawing you subtly away from him? Or through prayer, are you allowing it to do its work of being converted into something that takes you near him? That's his passion. 
That's why he allows the painful things, because he wants them to take us nearer and nearer to him. We can't always trace the hand of God, but we can always trust the heart of God. We can't always trace it. We can't always work it out. But through prayer, we express, Lord, I trust that your heart is as I believe it to be. So first of all, he starts off with a very common, wide, far-reaching, easy-to-connect-with scenario. When life's rubbish. But then just beautifully, within a heartbeat, look what he says straight away, same verse. Second scenario, when life's rosy. Are you cheerful? Are you cheerful? Sing praise. Now, I, I believe God particularly wants you just to tune in if you're just a little bit, ooh. We think the blessing of God is what we seek. But I see the more in Scripture, the more I look at it, I see that I believe God is almost, if I can put it this way, more nervous about blessing us than he is about allowing us to go through difficulties. Because if there is one thing that is more perilous, more dangerous than anything on the face of the earth, it's success. It is infinitely more dangerous than painful times. Infinitely more. When, you're like, when, when you hear, oh, have you heard? Yeah, she's got a boyfriend. He seems a good guy. We celebrate. God goes, oh, Lord. Just looks down, just it's jealousy. Look, just let this not take her heart away from me. You feel the jealous heart of God over his children. Oh, I blessed him with that promotion. Oh, let it not steal him away now. Let it not just give rise to independence and an autonomous heart. I blessed them with that big house and that, 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 that funding to be a blessing. I pray it won't. Oh, I just hope. Keep them, keep them, keep them. You can hear the heart of Christ when blessings come on his children. We are infinitely more vulnerable, infinitely more vulnerable to forget him. And that is why we must be those who understand that when we are blessed, and can I just, you know, reality check, if you're living here in the 21st century in this Disneyland that is East Kent where basically everything's stunning and beautiful and the water works and the electricity works and you have clothes on your back and money in your bank account, you know, your university or you've got a job or you've got a wife, you're here in this tiny, bizarre, one tiniest percent of this world which is like this where the rest of the world is absolutely hellish and you know Christ, wow! Oh, my word. Do you have this insane blessing from God right now? You're, you're in that. Just objectively, that is our state. Whether you feel it or not, it's true. To live at times like this where kings in the past would have looked at our houses with plasma TVs and mobile phones. And, they were, <gasps> and we just, yeah, yeah, whatever. We just, do you he's, what he's saying is that the danger when life is sweet, of us forgetting him, is crippling. It is massive. And of course, it's subtle. It's very subtle. It just, it just expresses itself. And really what, what he's saying is here, just say thank you. Sing thanks. You see, the principle of blessing leading to corruption, I see every Christmas with my daughters. 
It's funny. Every it starts six a.m. They're happy. Woo! First present, a Satsuma. Wow! In their stocking. This is amazing. Mm, yummy. Give it about two hours, and they're ripping these things open, lobbing it over their shoulders. No clue who it's from. On to the next one. And my beautiful daughters have changed into these little beasts. And it's like Josie's trying to scribble everything down, keeping up with the list of, you know, the 300th present is from. And they're just surrounded in this sea of stuff. Like, and I'm like, where have they gone? Where have they gone? And for some of you today, listen. God is saying to you, I want you to develop a singing, praising heart. You know, it's 1 Timothy 6, it's living with me at the moment. It's powerful. It says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Oh, so wait a minute, you're saying you can have a kind of godliness, but if it's not with contentment, the great gain doesn't come through? Seems to be what he's saying. That it's, it's not just enough just to have a form of godliness, but if your life is marked by lack of contentment, you're, oh, I always live in the future. Yeah, but you're not actually entering into a savouring of the present. It is profoundly destructive to our souls. Great gain, godliness and contentment. It's very, very key for us that we learn this, that we are a people who, whose DNA, because when you sing praise, what happens is you start to focus on what you have rather than what you don't have. It does something into you. It's like the difference when, when we've had a meal and Josie normally is slaved over a hot stove. We finish the meal. Daisy Lee, can I get down? Yep, down they go. Oh, wait a minute. Say the magic word. Say it. Thank you. Everything changes. A story in Luke 17 with the ten lepers. Ten lepers, they they meet God. They've got something more horrendous, more shame-bringing, more crippling, more physically horrific than most of us could imagine. They've got leprosy. Life over. Ten of them get healed. And only one of them returns to Christ. Not half. It's profound. There is something in the heart of us that so quickly just allows ourselves to slip. When when life is rosy, our hearts become congested. They become fattened. As James has said just a few verses earlier, they become bloated. They become divided. Some of you just think, wow, that's kind of happened to me. You know, when we praise, it is a rehearsal for our eternal song. Grace teaches us to praise, and in glory, we will continue to praise for eternity. So I'm not talking about coming in here and and joining in with the songs. I'm talking about a deep lifestyle of robust, internal, Monday morning praise over your life. Lord, I praise you. I praise you. I praise you. I praise you. What a profound, powerful thing. It's not just a a command. It's, It's wisdom. He's saying, listen, it, your sing praise is the equivalent of that, that prayer of a righteous person. As you pray, as you sing, it's a prayer that breaks the strongholds of heart that lusts after more. He then he moves on. Third scenario that we can relate to here is when you're fragile. He says here in verse um, 14, is anyone among you sick? Now just... <clears throat> 
bear with me a moment here. The word sick here in English um, translates a Greek word that, yes, can mean physical sickness, but actually can also just mean weary. Physically, not just ill, but also emotionally exhausted, just down, just kind of depressed. It's, it's, it's a quite a broad word. And so when we look at the word sick, it's not entirely helpful because we think, oh, basically, if someone's ill, you've got to get the elders. And there's nothing wrong with getting elders to pray for you. But when you realize it's a much broader word that basically means not just physically sick, but also emotionally or psychologically down or depressed or struggling and weak, of course, it means and shows us that it can't possibly mean that all the time. All those people can only be praying with the elders. What it actually means is this, is that the elders are need to be those who lead the charge, who are thoroughly involved with and releasing of an entire army of prayers who carry a shepherding heart. The needs of this area are absolutely massive. Massive. And what he's saying is here, it's not enough to have a broad, big church. It is absolutely vital you have a deep, mature, praying, shepherding church. Every single one of us carrying. The the imagery here is so beautiful. Why is he talking about oil? Well, I think we can use physical oil. I think that's an absolutely valid interpretation of it when people are ill or down or struggling. But also, it's symbolic of Psalm 23 where it says, The Lord is my shepherd. He anoints my head with oil. It's this beautiful picture that in the Middle East is that shepherds, they would gather their sheep at the end of the day in a big kind of, um, you know, whatever it's called, pen, and there'd be a little narrow gateway, and they would check each sheep very, very carefully. And the sh- a good shepherd, a good one, would check all the hair, check all the, the coat, but he would also check their legs. Often they'd got damaged, they'd got bleeding, they were hurt, they were sore, and he'd get oil. And he'd massage into the leg. Into the leg. And so when, when in the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, he anoints me with oil. Oh, it's this rich picture. That's what this world needs, doesn't it? It needs a people who care, who actually care, who in your small group, you care. The person sitting next to you, you care. I lo- my heart is profoundly moved, not just when I hear about church growth, although I love that, but when I hear about church depth, when I hear about person leaning upon others. Listen, what this is saying is, guys, when you're struggling and fragile, ask for help. Now, I know you think that's obvious, but just think about it. Let it just sink in for a moment what I'm saying. The first model he's saying is, when life's rubbish, whisper prayers. Second thing is, when life's brilliant, cultivate a singing heart of praise so that you never take it for granted. Third sort of model for prayer he's giving here is, when you are weak, either physically sick or emotionally sick, just bruised, just down, I'm just depressed. Listen, ask. It's not stiff upper lip. It's please help me. Please, please help me. One of the biggest battles we face as the church gets bigger and bigger is us staying intimate. I cannot cannot recommend to you enough our small groups. They're not perfect. But being with another Christ follower who, listen, gives you time every week. How are we doing? Do you know what? Rubbish. I feel so grotty. Please pray. 
He's saying the prayer of a righteous person. In contrast to that person, you see, when you're, when you're feeling weak, you need to get around people with faith. That's what he's saying. Get around people with faith. Yeah, get around people who are in a better place, the cheerful place, the strong people. Constantly be positioning yourself. Don't let them be mind readers. Say, I need your help. Call the elders, yes, but call those around you. Because as you do that, there is a profound release of God's power. Often when when we've gone through these kind of trials and we feel somewhat, as, as he's saying here, sick in all senses of it, our hearts can actually be somewhat kind of sick themselves. It says hope deferred makes the heart sick. When I'm sick, I, f- I can find my even my heart towards God starts to quite quickly just wander. He's saying, listen, even as we heard recently in the previous sermon on James about establishing your heart, guarding your heart, it's a similar idea here. Let others minister. Let them in. Let them in. We're going to do a series after this, a mini-series on discipleship, i.e. sharing life together, calling men and women around you, doing life together. Yes, at the 12, the small group level, but also at the three, Peter, James, and John, were intimately discipled by Jesus. And we believe as a church that element, that intimacy thing is often missing, and yet it can lead to the greatest growth. And we're going to do a little short series on that in a moment, but it's this idea of deep ministry. Some of you come and you're here, but God today is just saying, listen, I want to call you into a greater level of vulnerability and intimacy so that people can serve you and minister into your heart. He also then says here, fourth scenario, when you've strayed. talks about sin and confession. Do you see it here? In verse um, 15, he says, if, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, the power of that main verse we've looked at, that the prayer of a righteous person, it might be a whispered prayer, it might be a sung praise, it might be a prayer of please come and help me prayer. But here he's saying, when you strayed, the power of confession is such a lost art in the church of Jesus Christ. It really is. Just think about it for yourself. How often do you find yourself genuinely wanting and desiring to confess specific things to people you love and trust? I, I think often we... One, one commentator, commentator on this said this. He said, many blush to confess, but they do not blush when they commit. Do you see that? We, we, we blush when we thought, oh, I've got to tell that human about that sin. But we don't actually blush when we do it before the God of the universe. That's scary, isn't it? You think, wow, I am infinitely more prone to feel appropriate level of remorse when I tell Bert. And it tells me that I don't really believe in God. I say I do, but I don't actually live my life with a reverence that he can see my heart right now. And so he says, listen, (laughs) please confess. Use the tool of confession. Tell other people, because as you do that and you taste the slight embarrassment, but also the overwhelming sweetness, as you know that you're being made right with God. You see, the reality is God knows 
the sin that you've committed or I've committed. He knows it before we ever say it. But before we confess it, it can be like an abyss between us and God. But the moment that we do confess it, it becomes a bridge. It goes from an abyss to a bridge. That moment of confession, when we convert it, it instantly the Bible tells us God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. And this is where you see this, this wonderful theme here, the prayer of a righteous person. Listen, the confession of a righteous person. You don't stop being righteous when you sin. The Bible's glorious, stunning, scandalous truth is righteousness, right standing before God, is entirely because of being in someone else who is never unrighteous and his name is Jesus Christ. And so the power he's saying is when you sin, I'm not saying confess because you've been bad and I'm really cross with you. He's saying confess because you're in an indestructible state of righteousness that frees you to be honest about your mistakes. Because you're not insecure. What if, I, what if I confess to this person, Tom? Then they're going to know that I'm an idiot. Yeah, you are. But you're still righteous. Hallelujah. And, and, and what I'm saying is we just have these puffed up. So we don't confess. I think, about well, how often do I actually confess to my wife, Josie, properly? I mean, I do sometimes. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, God's saying, don't think about others. Think about you, Tom. How, is this something that's part of your life, a healthy thing? John Wesley just said, he just said, confess instantly. Just do it instantly. And some of you today, it's not necessarily a dramatic thing, although sometimes it is for me. I remember this exact spot, in fact, many years ago, I was a young Christian, and I got into a sexual relationship, and it was just killing me, the guilt, the shame, the conviction of my heart. I remember coming here, and at the end of a meeting, I just I almost ran over to the pastor and just confessed it to him. And he just, oh, there's no hint of condemnation, just fatherly love and well done and instant, oh, peace with God again. I was always righteous, hadn't changed, but, but I was now restored. The abyss became a bridge. And sometimes we just carry these things for so long or subtle things that cause, cause this thing between us and God. You see, it's Satan's delight when we sin and he gets us. It's Satan's delight to whisper to us that he's going to keep us forever. But it's God's delight, the moment we confess, for him to express his absolute restoration to us 10,000 times greater. But as long as we stay in a place of isolation and we don't confess it, what he's saying is we stay in a place where someone else, someone else is speaking to us. And God loves to break that. And so we see here this wonderful, wonderful fourth scenario. If you strayed, if you're strayed, confess your sins to one another. Your heart often gets hard. Some of you have got hard hearts right today. You have. And you need to know the reason is because you've subtly strayed. It's, just, it's not pretty dramatic, it's just subtly. Just subtly. And God's saying, listen, use the sledgehammer of confession. Imagine right now telling someone about just your subtle heart that's just it's gone hard. And just, uh, just because sometimes it's, God's so kind, he gives us things like confession, which go bang. Oh, thank the Lord. I, I've sent you again, Lord. And for some of you, it's that. It's just learning to make use of the gifts that God gives us like this. It's so powerful. So what he does is then, at the summary here, he gives us these stunning four scenarios. And let me just remind us. So he's given us four models of prayer. 
He says here, the prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a He's just like a mantra. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's powerful. It is great power and it's working. But what we sometimes think is, well, isn't prayer just in this one thing? And I, I struggle with that type of prayer. So that's why I don't pray. And do you see what he's done? He's given us not one, not two, not three, but four models of praying. He's saying, when you're struggling, just whisper. When life's great, sing it out. Don't just sing along with Whitney. Sing to him. Yeah, he's saying, you know, when you're cheerful, you probably want to sing. He's saying, brilliant, but just sing praise. Don't just sing other stuff. Sing for me. Sing for my, I'm your true love, aren't I? In eternity, that's what you're going to be doing. It's going to be your truest identity, your highest calling is to praise me for eternity. So do it now. When, when you're fragile, what does the prayer look like? It looks like this. Help. Help me, someone. Do it. Do it. If you're struggling, if you're fragile, and then if you stray, the fourth model he gives us is this. Can I just can I just talk with you for a minute? I love you and I trust you. I just need to speak to someone. Four models. You see that? But what he says is then, it's like the humor of James. I think James has got a stronger sense of humor. And we have to read it terribly seriously. He then, like with his final blow, he's like, what can I say? Just to absolutely ram it into their brains, that prayer is like everything. He gives us an example about praying to change the weather. Now, I'm sorry, but is that allowed? It, James, that to me seems just crazy that you're, you're, you're encouraging us to say, when in God's purposes... God leads you to these things. I want you to be wild in your prayers. Do you feel there's a wildness to this prayer? He, the scenario, for those of you who don't know, he says here, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He just lays that down. Because all of us look at Elijah and go, ooh, groovy name. He sounds pretty special. Elijah. And there's one or two Elijahs here. Uh, and we all look around, he might be an Elijah type. He's a special one. He sometimes says stuff at the front. And we just, what we do is, in false humility, we abdicate. We go, oh, they'll do it. They're really amazing. <laughs> I'm just humble. <gasps> I can't do anything. Shut up. Yes, you can. Because God lives in you. And I say that with a fatherly love for you. It's not about you. It's about East Kent and beyond seeing a supernatural God through you. He wants to do stuff that doesn't make sense, that blows our minds. That's what it's saying. That's the Tommy Shaw paraversion. It doesn't really matter about the weather. He's saying, is there, I mean, would you imagine this is a plausible thing you can pray about? No. I wouldn't imagine it's okay to pray for rain to stop and then praying for rain to start. I would imagine to pray for peace in my heart. That's legitimate. Pray for crazy stuff is what he's saying. And Elijah was a guy, a good guy, but a normal guy. He had his highs, he had his lows, believe me. But the thing you just need to know about Elijah was that he knew that God had said, Deuteronomy 11, if you, O Israel, stray, I will send a drought. Okay, Deuteronomy 11, God's promised it. And then in the passage he's talking about here is Elijah knew his Bible. And so when Ahab, who was the nightmare prime minister, king guy in charge of that nation, when he was just going like this, way off God, he said, wait a minute, God said, God's promised. So either God's a liar or his truth teller. And what he did is he said, God, that's your identity. I know you've said this. And so he prays, Lord, Stop the rain like you've said. 
get in this guy's face through sending a drought. It's too important. Don't let this nation just stray. God, get in his face, send a drought, do awful things. A drought. People would have died. But the purposes of God were so intense, so real, so specific. He says, Lord, you've said this. And so he, he, he prays and the drought begins. Year one, year two, year three. Three and a half years. And then we read that there comes this moment, this moment where God speaks in this picture to Elijah. Elijah says, I can hear the sound of rushing wind, rushing rain. It's coming, it's coming. And God says to him, after three and a half years, I'm bringing the rain. And there's a couple of things that are so key. Elijah, he knew the identity of God. He knew who God was. He knew that when life was rosy or when life was was rubbish, when you were fragile, when you were strong, he had learned this stuff. And here in his moments, which some of you will be facing sooner than you realize, your Elijah moments, the big one, when it just comes and suddenly you're there in your workplace or with your children, or on that stage, or with your neighbor who suddenly become open and wants to talk about things, whatever it is, the big one comes. And all the secret life of Elijah now gloriously comes alive. Because he knows who God is, and he knows who he is. Simple terms, he knows God's identity is a God of power. You see, up until this point, particularly if you'd looked you would have seen like a God, God Almighty. That's one of his names. He reveals himself through his names. When you pray, you're responding to who God is according to what he said. And he said to planet Earth, I am God Almighty. I'm strong, all right? I kind of sustain this thing. I'm the Lord of hosts, similar point. I'm the God who sees everything. I'm the God who supplies Jehovah Jireh. And so Elijah knew this. He knew simple terms, this God, my God, he is powerful and he's promised That if Israel goes off course, God's going to send a drought. And so what he does is he gets before God. It says, despite all the crowds, because he was in a moment of glory, he went up the mountain, he knelt down, and he put his hands and his head beneath his knees. He's doing a Matthew 6 where Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door. It's exactly the same. Some of you are like, yeah, I like to pray when I walk and just out and about. And that's okay. There's not a a problem with that. But my challenge would be, where is your closed off time? Where is the Matthew 6 time? Where is your Elijah time? Because the, the reality is for him to have a clear understanding in that pressure and precious moment of pressure, he had to understand above everything, God is a God of power. When we're facing the big wave, the big challenge, whatever it might be, that's the moment where before anything else, above anything else, we need to be absolutely settled in our hearts. Lord, Lord, you are the God who is bigger than this problem. You are the God. And what is so utterly staggering (laughs) is that more than even just having a God of power, what we see in Matthew 6, Jesus, he adds this word this word to us to pray. Yeah, you know God's a God of power. He says, but when you go into your room, you close the door. Pray to your father. You see, if you'd said to Elijah, yeah, we're praying to our father, he, he would have been like, that's blasphemous. That intimacy, what are you talking about? But what we see in the New Testament is we We have a greater intimacy with God than even Elijah. 
Elijah was a man like ours, and he had a certain revelation of God, but he was this side of the cross. He was this side of Jesus coming. And guys, right now, the gospel is this, is that you can, through Christ, have the same intimacy with God the Father as Jesus does. Think about that. The eternal face-to-face intimacy of Jesus and the Father. The, the incredible attentiveness of the Father to Jesus's every prayer or whisper. The same commitment the Father has had over the Son. The delight of the Father over the Son. The absolute love and adoration of the Father over the Son is now yours. If you're in Christ, you come in. And you get the same attentive Father. Not just powerful, yes, but a Father who before you even before you even say it, he knows it. So can I just say, this is so key for us. When you start to realize your identity in Christ, that the, the Father is... I was thinking about this recently. In fact, yesterday I just thought, would there ever be a time when I would want anything other than good things for my girls? No. Not even if I was cross and grumpy. I would always want good things. I'd always want blessings. Do you think the Father is any different over you? Is it possible, in fact, his desire to bless and grant you the secrets of your hearts is even greater than you could imagine? Is that possible? Because if it is, you're hearing the most important message you're ever going to hear on planet Earth. Don't think about your lunch. If God the Father has promised, listen, not just intimacy, you're intimate, but the added twist is this, stunning, stunning call to be hand-picked askers. You see, if you just stop at intimacy, you go, oh, this is great. Me and the Father are close like Jesus and the Father. But there is an element here that you see that I'll finish with this. See, in John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and to bear fruit so that whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. Well, I have to ask. I thought you said I was intimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to ask. It's been said that the theme and the flavor of Jesus' teaching on prayer is not so much just being with God, although that's good. It's asking. It's asking. Matthew 7 says, ask and you will receive. You do not have because you do not ask. It's breathtaking it as it is. Listen to me. God can do the whole of the world, can create the universe. We can go wrong and he can send his son and his son can live 33 years and live a perfect life and die on a cross and grant you salvation and send the spirit of adoption into your heart and guarantee eternity. And the one thing he says, your only little itsy bitsy thing you've got to do is this. Just don't forget, just ask. Isn't it incredible to think we can live this life without asking. Isn't that staggering? Just think about that. I find that a challenge, and at the same time, something in me shifts, and I think, what planet have I been living on? Why don't I spend my whole life asking? 
what conceivable reason would propel me to not ask God all the time for stuff? Do you understand? It's like, what is wrong with me? I'm bonkers and I'm a pastor. So if I'm like that, there's a chance some of you might be like that and think, I, I just, I live so much of my life not asking. <laughs> and he said, ask. When I hear your prayers, it's like I'm hearing my son, my boy, Jesus. It has the same level of effect on me when he prayed on earth. Do you think his prayers were powerful and effective, my friends? I think they were. Yours and I, because we are as righteous as Jesus, as a gift, never to change, never to perish, never to fade. When we pray, even a whisper prayer, bang, heaven explodes with response. Man, this is just dynamite. Oh, wake your sleeping church. When I read this and I look at other nations, if I'm honest, and other churches in this nation, and I look at our church, I think, oh, man. Do you know what? When I think about when I die, what do I want to have burnt with? Passion for this church. You know, it's good that the church is getting more organized. Those things are good. And it's good that those things are. But for me, a church that does not pray, it's like, is it even alive? It's so beautifully both challenging and encouraging. It's a weird mix. Just ask. Just ask. Just ask. I honestly believe this could be a massive turning point for us as a church. I feel like the spirit of prophecy on me. I feel it, guys. I feel I can fall asleep on this and not really ask. And look, he asked specifically, very specific. He didn't just go, oh, Lord, bless, do something, Lord. You know, kind of crazy gunshot prayers flying. He said, Lord, stop the drought. Stop the rain, do the rain. Do the rain. He's just like, it was specific. We've said, Lord, give us planning permission. Change those hearts that are right now really hard. Change it. Unanimous decision. We've got an atheist Lib Dem counsellor defending us on Twitter against other atheists who are going, hey, who, what's about this about this church? Is it going to be an atheist church? And he's like, no, you Wally, a Christian church. And they're like, well, who's going to pay for it? And he's like, they're going to pay for it. And I'm thinking, this is not probably what I might expect. God, are you, are you actually real God? And he's like, oh, Tom, Tom, I love you, but you're just so slow of heart. You're 35 and you're still learning to ask. You see, this is massive because when God promises, if you, I focus on like Romans 8, 28, he does all things. He works all things for the good of those who love him, which basically means you could interpret that as just sit back and relax. He'll just make everything happen. Some of us read that and we focus on those verses because we want to take the pressure off ourselves. And I get that and I'm like that. And they're there. They're great. Sit on them, enjoy them sometimes. But sometimes get off those verses and get onto this verse where he says, ask it is absolutely vital. If he's promised it, he promises it not to leave us to paralysis, but into prayer. It's counterintuitive. If someone says, I'm going to do this to you, for you, you go, thank you so much. But what the Bible says is now ask him. What? He just is going to do it. Yeah, ask him. Ask. Why? He just says, good. Yeah, ask. Okay? Doesn't always make sense. One of the reasons is because as we ask, guess what? He gets our attention. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't have to get you to ask him. He could just do it. Why is he asking? Because he loves you. He really loves you. And when we don't pray, it really matters. Partly because the stuff doesn't get done. 
but also because our relationship stays so shallow. And we just slide him in and there's a little bit there, a pocket God. I just feel God saying, this crescendo of the book, it's about, it's about seeing weather change. He couldn't have used the illustration that, that leaves us in any doubt. Listen, guys, we are not called to a polite little building of church. That is not in this book. That is not the church I see. I get worried sometimes when I think about church and I think, where's well, great, steady, yes, good, good things happening. I think I'm celebrating things at times which are, they're good, they're fine. I want to start celebrating the dead coming back. I do, because I think it's orthodox Christianity. I don't think it's wacky. I think it's normal. I, you know, in the, if you read the book of Acts alone, which is like Harry Potter on steroids, okay, it just is. It is. Don't come back. It is crazy town. It's amazing. If you ever thought Christianity was about Ten Commandments and do it, read the book. Read the book. It's a wild adventure until we meet him face to face. And I am sick and tired of boring church, if I'm honest. I want to, and I need your help. I need your help with this. We as elders need your help. You need to get us in the face and go, come on, Tom, believe for the supernatural. We need you to keep us accountable. We, we, don't you want that? That's why you're here. That's why you're on a blue chair in a school hall. You haven't come just to sit and go, oh, I've got some nice notes. No, we want to see... I want this week, I want next Sunday, this to be like a big queue of people saying, well, I just asked. I just asked. Tom said, the Bible just, I just asked, and you'll never believe what happened. I honestly believe. I honestly believe. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your life, God is wanting to deeply impress on our hearts the joy of asking. The joy of asking. He will always hear he will always answer. He may not answer in the way we think, but he will always hear and he will always answer. Guys, how incredible is that? Anyone? Thank you. I just think, hallelujah, God, you're so...